Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast. I'm Sarah Hill, Associate Editor. Today's program is brought to you by BioTill Cover Crops. BioTill Cover Crops provide innovative solutions to growing problems with a complete line of cover crops engineered to scavenge nutrients, improve water infiltration, stop erosion, rejuvenate soils, improve your bottom line, and keep you profitable. Call 541-928-0102 today for one-on-one local consultations and recommendations. Today, I'd like to introduce Michael Flessner, a weed science specialist with Virginia Tech. Michael will be discussing using cover crops to manage weeds. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thanks, it's a pleasure to be here. To get us started, uh, please go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, like you mentioned, I'm an extension specialist uh, in Virginia, working mostly in corn and soybeans, but also small grains and some other crops as well. I've been researching cover crops alongside herbicides and other non-chemical weed control tactics since 2014. I think about a third of my research uh, program is on farm. And so I, I just really try to be practical with our research efforts. Very good. Let's go ahead and, and jump right into our topic for today. Talk a little bit about how cover crops work to get rid of weeds without using herbicides. Sure. Cover crops can suppress weeds in many different ways. I kind of think about it as two different timings. Uh, The first of those is during their active growth. Uh, And during growth, they compete with weeds um, just like your crop would. They're going to compete for light, water, nutrients, uh, and space. Uh, And so in our studies, we've actually seen about an 85% reduction in horseweed, which is also known as mare's tail. Uh, But in that density at the cover crop termination, so the end of the cover crop active growth, uh, compared to a winter fallow uh, just from that competition. So it can be quite significant. Um, During their growth, as well as for uh, some period of time after termination, some cover crop species also have allelopathic effects. So they'll release chemicals into the soil, uh, which can suppress some weeds. Uh, But then that other time really is is after the cover crops are terminated, that that dead cover crop residue, if it's left intact on the soil surface, uh, provides a physical barrier there. And so a small seeded weed that doesn't have a lot of energy seed uh, stored in that seed will have a tough time pushing up through that. Uh, So it's not unlike the mulch maybe in a flower bed around your house. Uh, But that that physical barrier, that residue, it also blocks uh, some of the light. Um, and reduces temperature fluctuations and moisture fluctuations. And those can uh, influence some of the germination cues uh, in weed seeds. So there's really a lot of different ways that cover crops can can work to suppress weeds. Great. So do cover crops work as a weed deterrent for uh, both conventional and organic growers? Or are there certain situations where weeds might not work for one of those audiences? I think cover crops can be a great fit in both of those systems. You know, it's, it's a weed management tactic that, that meets the organic parameters. Uh, but what we've seen is it can really help uh, our herbicides in the conventional systems as well. Uh, we, we see cover crops reducing both the number and the rate of growth of weeds. And so whether you're coming back to clean that up with 
um, a herbicide or in a conventional system, you might have to modify your, your in-row cultivation, but the smaller and fewer the weeds, the more successful those later uh, weed control approaches are going to be. Uh, so, so that might be something that, you know, in either system, you might modify your approach slightly um, depending on, on how you integrate the cover crops into the system. Uh, but for organic growers, you might need to switch to like a high residue cultivator that's, that can deal with that cover crop residue on the soil surface. Okay. And that kind of actually leads me to my next question. Um, which cover crop species work the best to provide a lot of residue to help with weed suppression? Yeah, so biomass is really the key that we're, we're aiming for when we're talking about weed suppression. Uh, there are some nuances there. Uh, biomass is really king, but having a high enough carbon to nitrogen ratio and something that's maybe lignified at the time of termination, that's those things are going to help that that biomass, should we get it, persist and, ma and maximize the duration of weed suppression. So when we think about all those things together, really cereal rye is our workhorse uh, cover crop species for weed suppression. But other species like uh, triticale or wheat uh, have less of a potential for biomass, but they also persist uh, long enough to get some weed suppression. Okay. So have you seen if a cover crop monoculture or, or a single species or a cover crop mix, um, maybe containing some of those species that you just mentioned, would some of, which one of those would work better for weed suppression? So cover crop mixtures are a really hot topic with cover crops right now. Uh, what we found uh, is with the right cover crop monoculture, uh, we can get weed suppression that's just as good as a uh, simple mixture. Uh, so our cereal rye, like I mentioned, is really uh, usually where we'll see our, our maximum weed suppression. Um, when we compare that to a legume monoculture like hairy vetch or crimson clover by itself, the legumes have much higher nitrogen content and they tend to decompose and break down much faster. So we generally only see about two weeks worth of weed suppression, even when we maximize the biomass potential of those crops compared to a cereal rye where we're generally getting about six weeks worth of uh, weed suppression when we maximize its biomass. So, so the legume monoculture is, is as good as the uh, rye monoculture, but when we put the two together, when we have like a cereal rye hairy vetch mixture or a cereal rye crimson clover mixture, uh, we tend to get the, the best of both worlds. We have enough carbon in that system to, to have the residue persist and we can still get that six weeks of weed suppression. Um, and for someone like a corn grower, that's going to be a little bit concerned if there's a, if we have a high carbon content and that might tie up nitrogen and result in a nitrogen deficiency. The legume in there uh, really prevents that carbon to nitrogen ratio from reaching that level. Um, and it can also fix, we found just as much nitrogen as legume in monoculture. So, um, so those simple mixtures, I think of, of a, a rye or a cereal species uh, with a legume uh, really can be um, just as good as a rye monoculture for weed suppression. Okay, great. So now on the, the flip side of that, are there any cover crop species that don't work as well for weed suppression? Yes, yeah, so we mentioned the legumes in monocultures. They tend to, to decompose rather quickly, so you don't get after termination the, the persistence of weed suppression there. Uh, ones that winter kill obviously aren't going to have that either, so the um, some of the radish uh, 
different radishes that are on the market, uh, mostly those winter kill, and they're, they're not going to have uh, much persistence there. Um, but, you know, they can be meaningful for uh, both legumes and some of the radishes for some of that competition during the fall uh, and for legumes that last into the spring or uh, rape season and those mustard species that last through the winter. We can get some some competition into the spring from those as well. Okay. Um, so now, which weed species are the most impacted by using these cover crops to suppress them? So we found that the small seeded annual broadleaf weeds are the ones that, that are most impacted by uh, cover crops. And so that includes a lot of our really problematic and troublesome, troublesome species in our, our no-till systems uh, and ones that are herbicide resistant. So these are kind of the the big uh, culprits that we're trying to deal with a lot of times, weeds like Palmer amaranth and common water hemp through much of the of the country, uh, common lamb's quarters, horseweed or mare's tail. So those tends to be the ones that are best mitigated with cover crops. Uh, to a lesser extent, our small seeded annual grasses, uh, the grasses tend to poke up through the through the residue a little bit easier. So, uh, but things like crabgrass are ones that we have seen uh, significant amounts of suppression with. When, when you start getting into larger seeded weeds, they have more energy stored in that seed and can just push up through the residue a little bit better than something with a, a small seed. So uh, examples there would be like Texas panicum or morning glories uh, that have a relatively large seed. Um, the last one uh, category of weeds are really the perennial weeds. If they're coming back from those underground structures, they've got a lot of energy stored there and, and we don't see really any slowdown uh, from the cover crop residues. So that'd be weeds like um, Johnson grass or pokeweed or hemp dogbane. Does it matter of the timing of when those cover crops are seeded, whether it's in the, in the spring or the fall to get that high level of weed suppression? Well, I guess it, it, as long as you can get the biomass, it wouldn't matter. But um, we've even seen if we try to plant late in the fall, we won't get the biomass in the spring that we need to suppress weeds into, into the cash crop that follows the cover crop. So it, it does matter to get a timely seeding. Uh, for us in Virginia and the Mid-Atlantic region, um, seeding in uh, late September is great. That's pretty difficult to do sometimes with harvest, uh, but October is good. November, you know, some some years you can get by with a, a high seeding rate of cereal rye at that time, but we're really starting to get to where we just don't have enough heat units between when planting and when we're terminating the cover crop to get the biomass. So a, a timely seeding is important. Um, and, and I think in some of these species where, you know, we have a significant investment in seed cost and dr a drill is slower than a broadcast, but um, a drill is going to have better seed to soil contact. And so uh, a lot of times establishment method can matter as well. We'll be right back to the podcast. But first, I want to thank our sponsor. BioTill cover crops provide innovative solutions to growing problems with a complete line of cover crops engineered to scavenge nutrients, improve water infiltration, stop erosion, rejuvenate soils, improve your bottom line, and keep you profitable. Call 541-928-0102 today for one-on-one -on -one local cons consultations and recommendations. And now back to the podcast. Early in the in the cash crop growing season, if cover crops are growing, 
when would when would a grower be most likely to see that weed suppression happening? So we've seen the, I guess, the greatest weed suppression at the end of the cover crop growing stage, uh, where you've got a lot of a large cover of green cover of the cover crop. Um, and so early emerging weeds like common ragweed, um, common lambs quarters are, are really suppressed during that time. At some point, we have to terminate the cover crop um, so that we can plant our cash crop. And, and we really see most of the weed suppression occurring um, and basically immediately after termination. Uh, and it will last for us. We've really seen it last up to about six weeks after cover crop termination. Um, but it, it kind of steadily declines during that time. So uh, if you're familiar with, you know, pre-emergent herbicide acting, um, you know, it's peak right after it's activating rainfall, um, it's going to slowly decompose and, and basically at some point have no more meaningful weed control. Cover crops are kind of the same way. They're going to start to decompose. And as that residue breaks down, the, so does the weed control. Okay. So talk a little bit about why a grower would even want to consider cover crops as a weed suppression method. Uh, wouldn't they just be money ahead to um, spend the money on a, a herbicide or some other method instead, or why cover crops? Well, the reason I got into researching cover crops is really as a potential solution to manage herbicide resistant weeds. And so in those cases, it may not be as simple as just spraying a herbicide because the herbicide is no longer killing that uh, particular uh, species of weed, at least in that field. There are other herbicide alternatives though. Um, and sometimes those are more expensive. They might persist longer. Um, and there could be some drawbacks there as well. Um, but just kind of staying with the sort of herbicide comparison for now, um, when we talk about herbicide resistant weeds and, and what cover crops can do, they will, like I said, they'll reduce the number uh, and the size of the, the weed when we have to come back for that over the top herbicide application. And so a lot of times it's going to improve the effectiveness uh, of that herbicide, uh, but it also is going to help mitigate herbicide resistance. The, the fewer number of, of weed, individual weeds we're treating, the less likely we are to develop herbicide resistance. And so um, that's got a, a major benefit there. So I guess cover crops can improve the effectiveness of the herbicides and mitigate herbicide resistance. I do think cover crops have potential to reduce herbicide input costs. This is an area we're looking into now with our research program. We've seen if we get the biomass, uh, such good suppression, really suppression that's on par with a, a premium residual herbicide, that I think there's potential for farmers to uh, actually reduce the herbicide input costs, either reducing you know the herbicides that they're using, or the number of herbicides in the tank, or the number of passes across the field, or, or maybe both. So so that could be a reason is, is they may, they may actually be money ahead to have the cover crop there. Um, especially in regions like mine, where there might be some incentive payments to help get the cover crop uh, in the ground. But probably the, the best reason is that the cover crops have a lot of other agronomic benefits just beyond weed suppression. Right. And that's kind of all you're going to get out of a herbicide. Uh, and those can be, I think, appealing to farmers. Like I mentioned with a simple mixture of cereal rye and hairy vetch, uh, you know, we, we've saw, we've seen in our research, over 100 pounds of nitrogen fixed per acre while we're achieving weed suppression as good as a, a residual herbicide applied at planting. Um, at the same time, you know, if you're, if you're getting the level of biomass 
you need for weed suppression out of a cover crop, you're going to get a whole host of other benefits like preventing erosion, increased water infiltration, probably building up soil organic matter. Um, and so there's, there's all these other agronomic benefits to using cover crops in the system um, in addition to weed control. Fantastic. So you mentioned, uh, you know, in your region, growers have the option of uh, having incentives for growing cover crops. Are there certain regions of the United States where cover crops work better for weed suppression than others? So certainly in, in my region and the southern re regions uh, where we have uh, enough of a season to grow both a cash crop and get enough biomass out of a cover crop, I think that's where um, the cover crops are going to fit best in the system. I don't have experience uh, maybe in other areas, but, you know, somewhere <laughs> at some point it's going to get too cold and all of our heat units are basically dedicated to growing that cash crop. So um, I'm guessing somewhere like Minnesota, North Dakota, somewhere in there, um, they're just not going to be able to get enough biomass needed um, from the cover crop to be as successful maybe as these other regions are for weed control. Fair enough. So now, Let's talk a little bit about that and, and biomass and how much biomass is needed to really be effective at suppressing weeds. Yeah, so it's it's quite a bit of biomass, actually. In, in our studies, we're basically optimizing biomass at about 7,500 pounds of dry biomass per acre. Um, beyond that, we don't really see much additional benefits for weed suppression. Uh, if, if we get that level of, of biomass from a cereal rye, uh, like I said, we will get about 70, 75% suppression of those summer annual weeds for about six weeks after termination. So that, that can be really significant. Uh, but that being said, you know, this is a question that we've, we've really gathered a lot of data on, and we're still going to see, I think, a meaningful weed suppression benefit um, from somewhere around 4,000 pounds of biomass on up. Okay, that, that is a significant amount for sure. So talk a little bit about, um, are there certain cash crops that uh, cover crops work best as a weed suppression tool with, or can, they, can cover crops work well with any cash crop as a weed suppression tool? So we've uh, done most of our work in, in corn and soybeans, a little bit in cotton. Uh, and so I think certainly, certainly cover crops can work very well in those crops. Um, I think probably any transplanted crop, um, if you could get roll the residue down and get it into that, uh, would work well in other large seeded crops. Um, uh, we haven't really looked at it, but I'm guessing, you know, a smaller seeded crop, something like sorghum uh, may not work as well in because it's, again, it's got to have that energy and, and vigor in the seed to push up through that um, cover crop residue. And we've, we've seen really no problems with that, with corn, uh, cotton, and soybean. Certainly have to adjust the planter to, to still get that seed to soil contact and row closure right. But um, once you figure out those adjustments, uh, we haven't had any issues there. Okay. So um, you mentioned earlier that one of the ways that um, cover crops work is by limiting the amount of light that is hitting the weed seed. How does a grower determine how much light is potentially getting through that biomass to perhaps germinate weed seed? 
Yeah, so we use a kind of a pricey scientific instrument um, to to measure the amount of light getting through that cover crop residue and and uh, to the soil surface. Uh, where you know in a no-till system, most of our weed seeds are going to be is within that top layer of soil. Uh, and uh, you, taking those data, I think it's it's fairly intuitive. Um, you know, the more bare ground you can see as you look straight down on that cover crop residue, uh, the more light. Uh, is going to be reaching uh, those those weed seeds, uh, and that's that's important because many seeds, especially these smaller seeded ones, you know, once they try to germinate, they have one shot at getting those leaves open and into sunlight. Uh, and if they don't if they don't get that, then they're going to die, right? So, all these germination cues help make sure that the seed actually gets that right. That if it tries to germinate, there's going to be enough. Um, it can reach sunlight before it exhausts that energy reserve. So those, it's really a strong germination cue for a lot of our uh, small seeded weeds that are, are predominant in our no-till systems. Okay, so uh, how concerned should growers be about potential herbicide carryover? Um, say that they do use an herbicide, um, how might that affect fall or spring planted cover crops? Certainly. I mean, so we, we, really, we like residual herbicides in our crop because it can help uh, keep the crop weed free for an extended period of time. Um, but if it extends too long, then it can certainly injure the next crop species or the next cover crop species. And that's, that's really what herbicide carryover is. And so I think uh, farmers should be concerned with this. Um, there has been some research that we've done in, in Virginia uh, and, and in in a few other places uh, across the U.S. Um, and there's so many things, factors that go into herbicide carryover. It's really difficult to say, you know, precisely here's, <laughs> here's the issue you should be concerned with because it's um, the environment, the soil type, the exact herbicide you apply. And, and we have so many different cover crop species, all with their own different sensitivities to herbicides. Uh, it, it can be, uh, you know, kind of a guessing game out there. Um, but, but I guess I would say uh, we really haven't seen this to be as big of an issue as we thought, um, but I still think farmers probably should be um, concerned with it. And, and we have some sources of information to help farmers uh, make those decisions, you know, which, which herbicides are, are more risky to which cover crop species than others. And so I think with some planning, you can find a combination of herbicides uh, and cover crops that are, that are compatible and are still going to get the weed control that you need. Okay. That was actually going to be one of my, my next questions is which herbicides are some of those worst offenders when it comes to um, harming cover crops through carryover? Yeah. So this is, we've actually, like I mentioned, added some tables in our mid-Atlantic weed control guide to help uh, farmers and agronomists uh, address this issue. Uh, in Virginia, we found that fomesifen, uh, which is a fairly common product in soybeans and in cotton as well, uh, so that's in products like Reflex, Flexstar GT, uh, Prefix, uh, and some others. Uh, that's one that we did see uh, carry over to a, a few species uh, across our four site years. Uh, a couple others would be Trifloxysulfuron or Invoke in cotton and Isoxaflutol, which is in Balance Flex uh, and Corvus in corn. Uh, those are really the, the three actives that we, were, we saw most likely to result in cover crop injury. 
Um, I guess the flip side of that is which cover crop species are most sensitive. And in general, our grass cover crop species were fairly safe to, to the herbicides we tested. And I, I think we tested about 30 different herbicides that had residual activity in the soil. So a, a pretty good um, a representation of, of the common uh, products that are out there. Um, but the grasses were generally safe. Uh, crimson clover, uh, I'm, I'm going to call it forage radish, but there's a, there's a lot of different branded radishes out there. Um, and uh, rapeseed were the ones that were most likely to be injured uh, in our studies. Uh, but again, you know, carryover can vary widely across the U.S. If, if with soil and um, soil pH and a host of other different factors there. So uh, I guess I would recommend that the growers consult a local extension or do a, a bioassay before planting to get really the, the best, most site-specific information they can. Okay. And kind of uh, to wrap up our, our interview here today, where can our listeners go for more information other than their local uh, extension office? Yeah, well, lo local extension is always a great resource, um, but I'd encourage listeners to check out uh, GROW, which is Getting Rid of Weeds. Uh, I'm part of that network, and it's it's a publicly led network coordinating research uh, and outreach of of a host of non-chemical tactics, including cover crops, um, and how those can fit, can fit in uh, both our conventional as well as organic uh, systems. So, uh, we're on social media and you can find um, many resources on our website. It's growiwm.org, as in growintegratedweedmanagement.org. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. Once again, I want to thank BioTill for sponsoring this podcast. To learn more about BioTill, call 541-928-0102 today. For more information about all things cover crops, visit us online at covercropstrategies.com.